The following episode of the 9pm edict was recorded on the 22nd of February. It contains two people who were both very wrong about Russia and Ukraine. They talk for way too long. There's also strong language, bizarre sexual references, and politics. Saturday, the 26th of February, 2022. The summer series continues uh, with a long, long conversation with Scottish author, social researcher and podcaster, David F. Porteous. His podcast is Cheerful Despair. His latest novel is The Wicker Man Preservation Society. In this episode, uh, we talk about Scottish things. I have gone on a spiritual journey with Haggis throughout my life. We compare and contrast our political leaders. I find that Australian Prime Ministers look like um, sort of B-movie villains from really low-budget films. And we even have a few life tips. When you're a young lad, then uh, a bit of of cheddar and a handjob will do you fine. Oh, and some serious stuff too, like universal basic income. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm Rambling Embarrassment with David F. Porteous. <sighs> Look, we've started, so we might as well start. David F. Porteous, yep. the third, is it? Welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me. Now, this is kind of awkward because we are recording this literally as the nice Mr. Putin is declaring that Ukraine is not an actual country. Um, and I love, the, I love the look he's got there, this fabulous big grand hall in Moscow with everyone listening to them. But here's, here's a phrase. Um, I'll, I'll do it in English, shall I, um, rather than Russian? Um, well, I won't understand it if you do it in <laughs> Russian, so yeah, oh, no. go ahead. And, and I don't speak Russian. Contemporary Ukraine should be called the Vladimir I. Lenin Republic of Ukraine. And then they tore down his statues and called it decommunization. You want decommunization? We're prepared to show you what that really means for Ukraine. So that's nice. It's such a weird threat, isn't it? I'm perfectly... Yeah. I, I'd have to say, if somebody threatened me... In a pub late at night after we've had a few with a bout of decommunization, I'd have no idea whether that was a threat or a promise, frankly. But yeah, which punched them anyway, I think. Well, it's Scotland, obviously. Yeah. I, I, I translate this from the Russian as as look, Russia is a big old cuddly bear, and we are going to give Ukraine such a cuddle. Do you know what? And and I don't think this gets said enough in Western media. Um, I'm very impressed by Vladimir Putin. I, I okay. really am. He's he's one of these people who um, seems to be playing some kind of three-dimensional chess um, with the political expectations of the world. And it's hard not to contrast that against uh, Trump that America had for a while and uh, Johnson uh, that we have in Britain just now, who are playing a sort of game of Jenga where the idea is to simply keep moving pieces and hope everything doesn't fall over while it's your turn. Um, You know, obviously, obviously a mad autocrat. We have a bit of that here in Australia as well, obviously. Sure. Um, It's a trio. I I think, yeah, I think the whole thing with with the Ukraine is a little bit overblown. I think it's highly unlikely that he wants 
war, if for no other reason than because he's stolen hundreds of billions of dollars from the Russian people, and he's not going to be able to spend that if he's some kind of uh, persona non grata the world over for starting World War Three. Uh, I mean, we've, we've had World War Three about to start so many times before. Sure, you I- know what's interesting? They called it. They called it the First World War while it was happening. They didn't wait what? for there to be a second world war before they went back and called it the First World War. It yeah, was a I general th- recognition that that was a big thing. And I yeah, think but I when think it happens, it's because we'll it was the World War bit. Uh, look, should we turn to something far less complex and um, <laughs> also good? Um, oh, shall we do this now? Uh, we'll come back to the politics, I think, because, I mean, we are, both our nations are led by conservative Muppets, different kinds of Muppet, you know, but you could have an essay like compare and contrast. I mean, we don't have Trump in anymore, so that's kind of changed a bit. But they are different kinds of Muppets, as I see. Uh, Johnson, Boris Johnson is your classic private school privileged Muppet. And... Scott Morrison just somehow has stumbled his way to the top after being sacked from a variety of jobs for reasons that are all under non-disclosure agreements. That's not wildly different than Boris Johnson. He is <laughs> he is certainly the only British Prime Minister who's been sacked from two previous jobs for being a liar. Um, you That's would true. think that the, the character of a person would be important for, for that kind of job. Uh, apparently not. Um, no. I, I find, and hopefully you don't take this too personally, I me, find that... Me take it personally. <laughs> on, on behalf of Australia. <laughs> on behalf of the nation. Um, on behalf of the Federated Commonwealth of Australia. I find that Australian Prime Ministers look like um, sort of B-movie villains from really low-budget films. And I thought that particularly of Paul Abbott, who who has got a bit uh, of the Tony Green Abbott. Goblin about Tony him. Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott, sorry. Um, who's got a bit of the Green Goblin about him. But they all look like they should be in Neighbours or Home and Away, like scheming something about transforming a park into a parking lot or something like that. Um, I, I'm interested in what the Australian equivalent of this is, because I've observed that one of the things that kind of defines a culture is um, its interpretation of what a crisis is. So what is the worst thing that can happen? And a, and a, cri- and a culture is sort of defined by that. And, and if we look at America, you could say that the worst thing that would happen in America is that um, the sports team that you support loses the final game on the day that the aliens blow up the Statue of Liberty and kill the president. Uh, who, through exploitation of the Air Bud uh, exception, is uh, also your dog. Um, so th- that all happens at one time. That's the worst thing that could happen. The equivalent for Britain is that you are joining, um, you're going to perform some sort of minor bureaucratic function, and you happen to be in the wrong queue. And the person behind you tuts, and you turn around, and it turns out to be your old primary school teacher. You accidentally call them mum, and then your trousers fall down. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen to a British person. <laughs> and for for hundreds of years, that defined like the worst thing that could happen to our culture. I am st- 
stuck to think of an Australian equivalent. I think it is possibly raining on Christmas Day when you had your barbecue planned for the beach. Because, uh, of course, Christmas is in summer here. We sure. do actually have an Australian folk song called The Pub With No Beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, sounds, that rings true to me. Yes. That, that's yes. hitting all of my stereotype buttons there. Fine. I think we'll come back to that. I'm going to think. I'm going to think about what's the Australian equivalent of that. What's interesting here is that whilst that's that's definitely true of us and has been, there was a point a few years ago where that seemed to stop mattering. Like the idea that we would um, suddenly be publicly embarrassed and that we'd be fine with all of that um, was the big change in our culture. And it was, um, Brexit is obviously the big symbolic thing um, about mm-hmm. it. Um, but then voting for Johnson uh, happened after that. And it's it turns out that probably the thing that the, the Brexit voting British public hate the most is the fact that the word xenophobia is Greek. Um, and we've just got, We've got someone who is the equivalent of a of a mad relative that you would hide in the attic. And historically, we would have been so ashamed to admit that this person was even like a member of parliament, much less um, the, the highest uh, office holder um, in the land. And the worst of it is, he's not even the maddest one. I don't know oh. if... I don't... No. Um, probably the... The weirdest of the lot is a guy called Jacob Rees-Mogg. Has has he filtered through to Australia? Look, he has amongst the, uh, I was about to say the political condescenti, I mean the political tragics, I think is the correct term (laughs) here. Yeah, absolutely. He is the person who uh, would like to think he's emerged from a Victorian novel, and he looks like he has. Um, if he was in the sort of Netflix version of Oliver Twist, that's that's the sort of person he would be. Absolutely. The kind of guy who tortures chimney sweeps. Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing about Jacob Rees-Mogg, he doesn't take anything particularly seriously other than perhaps how smart he thinks he is. Um, and to understand him, you probably need need two bits of information. The first one would be that he doesn't take himself particularly seriously in terms of anything he says. And the second one is that he can smell your children and he will catch them. And not for, you know, sexual purposes, just to kind of... I think them, to kill them, turn probably. Turn them to crime, yeah, kill them? Yeah. yeah. All of I those mean, at things. least that's good, clean fun. <laughs> Another thing we have in common, of course, is... Uh, well, this. We, we need to hear the, the news here from Carl Stefanovic on Channel 9's Today Show, why he hasn't decolonised and pronounced his name Carl Stefanovic, I don't know. That's another whole thing to do with ethnicity in Australia. But uh, here he is. Returning now to our top story and those major health fears for the Queen, the 95-year-old monarch being treated at Windsor Castle after testing positive to COVID-19. Let's bring in Royal Editor at the Daily Mirror, Russell Myers in the UK. Russell, good morning to you. Worrying stuff. 
Good morning, Carl. Well, I think, you know, the, the, everyone has been worried for the Queen's health in recent weeks. And I think that uh, lots of people were dreading the news that <clears throat> if she had contracted COVID. But we are living in a world of vaccines. She is triple jabbed. So we are told by the palace that she's suffering from mild cold-like symptoms. And, and I, I imagine there'll be an update during the week as, uh, as the doctors are looking after her. Do we know how she got it yet? Now, she was in contact with Charles who had the virus. Well, she was, and that was a big uh, fear a few days ago because Charles tested positive a couple of days after seeing her. Camilla tested positive after seeing Charles as well. But we uh, understand there has been a bit of a breakout at Windsor Castle. There's been uh, quite a big bubble in place over the last couple of years. But with the restrictions sort of easing over here, then, um, you know, it was probably it was probably just one of those things, I think. This could still be incredibly tasteless, what we're about to do. I mean, it's tasteless anyway. And if we were in Thailand, we would be in jail for decades for doing this. But, uh, and at the time of recording, Mrs Windsor is doing okay. But is this finally the time for Charles III? That, that's interesting. I, I understand that he's actually not going to be called Charles if he takes up... Well, when he takes up the job, let's put it that way. Well, that's right. Um, it can take up another name. And I yeah, even I, had as my next little note, you know, do you want to be Charles and remind people that kings can be beheaded in these turbulent times? He's not interesting enough to be beheaded, I think is the truth of it. Um, he's a, he's one of, He would be one of the milder kings um, that we've ever had. Um, that's, I think, that's a very polite way of saying boring, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, he, he absolutely is, um, and I think well-meaning, nevertheless, but slightly uh, yeah. mad. I mean, not to you know Georgian levels, but sure, aren't, aren't they all eccentric though? I mean, a little uh, bit. Isn't everyone uh, eccentric? I would, I would probably be uh, a slightly more outlandish king. If I were uh, chosen, it would it would also be very unexpected. I'm quite far down the running <laughs> order um, for that. Um, but it's um, I think she'll be fine, uh, Her Majesty. What was interesting mm. is that uh, there were lots of members of the Conservative Party who did sort of identical uh, in the UK um, Conservative uh, HQ. Here is what you tweet. Um, today messages, all identical, saying things like, God save the Queen, wishing you for a speedy recovery, um, and all of them doing that same sort of variation on those words, which is, it sort of rings hollow. Also, I don't think the Queen's on Twitter anyway, so I, I'm not sure uh, that I mean, the palace it. is. No, uh, um, yeah. the palace is on Twitter, but I don't think she is personally. Yeah, I feel like if you really wanted to express your support, sometimes they show her cards. You could you could definitely send the Queen a card. I don't know that they're going to print out some tweets and bring them to her. Um, I, especially I not if they're identical. She sits there on her her golden iPhone, and and she she looks at Twitter and tuts and laughs and you know makes little notes of who is going to be dealt with later. It's it's difficult to imagine her uh, doing anything like that, but um, I I think she's she probably understands the way this game is is played better than anybody else she's um, been without doing having Twitter. Yeah. So yeah, um, I I think she'll be fine. Mostly, I'm concerned about her being well because um, 
as and when, and we are all mortal, everyone is mortal, and hopefully this isn't a crime to suggest that the Queen will one day die. Um, uh, when she dies, there will be a public holiday for the funeral. So we're also looking at getting a couple of days of public holiday for the Diamond Jubilee this year. If she dies before the Diamond Jubilee, you know they're going to roll those holidays together. What I'm saying is she needs to make it past the Diamond Jubilee holiday. Then she can, it's only a couple of months, then she can die. And then there'll be another holiday that'll come out after that. And that will be, you know, a very nice bookend to her service um, to the British people. What concerns me, though, and uh, this is this is another uh, bit of commentary for which if this was Thailand, I would be probably executed at this stage. The news came out at the same time, and I have, I've got a screenshot. You see it in front of you there, David. Queen Elizabeth II test positive for COVID-19, sure, but also Justin Bieber tests positive for COVID-19 as he has postponed his US tour. Is this a case for Rule 34? Is Her Majesty the Queen having an affair with Justin Bieber? She's a single lady. Okay, she can do whatever she wants. Now, Justin, Justin is married, but he's one of these Hollywood mm. types. Yeah. So, I mean, he's Canadian. Shh, does that, how does that matter in that context? Yeah, I think point. Canadians have affairs. I think they apologize afterwards, but I, <laughs> and they still have back. affairs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think if Queen Elizabeth rung up Justin Bieber and said, I'm I'm getting on, Justin. Um, yeah, I'm 95, want, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you want to come for a command performance? And I think, I think he might. You know, he is, as you say, a Canadian. He's he's one of Her Majesty's loyal subjects. I think if mm. uh, if called upon to serve, um, surely he has to. Wouldn't it be fabulous to have that power? <laughs> the Herald's son in Melbourne. One of uh, Mr. Murdoch's more feral tabloids uh, had the wonderful headline uh, a few hours ago, how Prince Andrew could fill in for the COVID-struck Queen. Now, their argument was broadly that Charles is a bit crook with the COVID as well. Uh, So next in line, is it Prince Andrew? It is, isn't it? Well, yes and no, but but not really. Not really. Um, I mean, technically, once you have an heir, then it goes down their children before it comes across to the next oh, that's one of true. the Queen's children. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, so it would be William who would be subbed in. Thank God but, for that. Well, I mean, to go back to my theme of embarrassment, um, oh, sure. can, you, can you imagine anything more embarrassing than being caught um, trafficking... Uh, and having relations with a 17-year-old girl, and your mum finds out... Allegedly. At, allegedly, sure. Uh, and your mum finds out, and it costs her £12 million. Mm. That, that is... That was a bad day, I think, for for him. Yeah, it's, it's a bit beyond I nicked a packet of chips from the, the local corner shop, and now I have to go back and, and give the shopkeeper a fiver. And you get a clip around the ear. Yeah, it's it's a notch up from that. Maybe two notches up from that. Andy, what be- Andy, what were you thinking of? 
What would be very interesting is if, like a mum going back to the shop with her shoplifting child, the Queen actually accompanied Prince Andrew to deliver that twelve million pound check to someone. Just said, and now say sorry, say sorry to the lady. There should be a lot more of that community-based stuff. I mean, the Queen Mother would, the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth would have been up for that sort of thing. Definitely. Yeah. God bless her. I don't see why you shouldn't. I mean, I think if you do something, there, there shouldn't be any sort of age limit on that kind of thing. And why wouldn't you have your like 90-year-old mother come and correct the behavior of a 60-year-old son um, or something like that in that kind of very public way? Um, if it needs to be done, then it needs to be done. I think it does. And... Uh Yes. Look, before we go to the next uh, item, I do want to stress again, uh, for those of you in the future listening to this and going, oh my God, what are you boys thinking? Uh, At the time of recording, the Queen uh, was alive, if not well. Something I'd like to explore with you today, David. This is the serious bit. It's as serious as it's going to get, I reckon. Blaming the poors. Blaming the poor people for everything that goes wrong. Now, I'll come back to what's happening in Australia in a minute. Uh, But I see, because you told me, that Mm. Wales actually has a universal basic income pilot scheme going. I, I love this. This is amazing. What... Well, kids, they're adults at this stage. Once they turn 18 and they've left the parental home, £1,600 a month for two years. So um, the the targeted scheme in Wales specifically is looking uh, more at children who are leaving a a looked-after environment. So we would uh, care home, that sort of thing, um, is is the particular Ah, target for this. So it's not every kid. It's not yet. But right. this is so. How how much do you know about basic income? Is it useful? Is this a, a yeah, concept let's do, that's let's, familiar let's to us? Let's do the elevator pitch. So, um, essentially, um, what a basic income, a universal basic income, uh, is, and there are lots of different variations um, of what constitutes it. But it's an amount of money that every single person would get every month, which would be sufficient to cover most, if not all, of their needs. And it's as simple as that. It, it's kind of what? It's a dividend for being a citizen almost. It's the whole, you are a citizen, you have a right to live. This is what, what it costs to live. Here it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not uh, a, a necessarily a crazy idea. Um, there are a couple of countries who have come within spitting distance of actually introducing a universal basic income for um, all of their citizens. Uh, America's one of them um, at one point. Um, it fell at the final hurdle what? because people... Yeah, it was back in the 1960s. Um, it fell at the final hurdle because there was um, this notion that it wasn't enough money that was being offered um, as part of it. And then the idea just uh, was never picked up again. Uh, but there are a number of countries that have done pilots which have been uh, sort of small geographic areas. So individual towns, individual uh, communities, um, and cohorts that are sort of mixed up um, in uh other sort of communities of people who are not receiving um, this benefit. What's good, particularly about the Welsh one, is that it is something which is targeted at, initially, 
this group of people who will have the absolute worst outcomes. So if you could think about the people who are most likely to have uh, drug addiction, unemployment, uh, you know, becoming pregnant too young, all these all these sorts of things which we uh, generally attribute as being societal ills, the group that is most likely to get them are people who are coming out of a cared environment, a looked after environment. By addressing that, by giving them money, you can essentially stop all of those things happening. And it provides potentially, if it works, um, a really strong argument for it's a wedge issue. Once it can be shown as working for that group, you can then say it will work for all young people. So why isn't it every young person from the age of 18 to 25 who gets that sort of benefit? And then once you get all young people, the argument then becomes, well, why not apply it to everyone? Uh, essentially. And it's one of these ideas which has support from across the political spectrum for lots of different reasons. So obviously, by doing this, you eliminate poverty immediately. Um, But you also eliminate bureaucracy. Um, You eliminate uh, a means testing system from all of this. And you begin to shift resources away from lots of things which some people find unpalatable but are are necessary like um, policing services and like uh, social care social work um, that sort of thing because there's just less need for those things if people don't have to um, commit uh, crimes of uh, crimes for economic reasons all that sort of uh, all that sort of thing Um, so it's a really good project and hopefully it will lead to um, a spread of this to to more groups and to more people. To put this Welsh trial in context, that amount of money, uh, £1,600 a month, translates to about 3000 Australian dollars. And to put that in context, the current base rate for unemployment benefit in Australia, which is, has the wonderfully Orwellian name New Start, no, it's <laughs> called um, Job Seeker now, it was called New South, it's now called Joy, is $1,200. So a little over a third of that. The Australian figure has been way under the poverty line. It began under the poverty line. It was sold as, well, this is just, you know, a, a temporary thing to tide you over until you can find a new job, except most people on it are on it for years at a time because, of course, a significant proportion of them. I mean, I don't want to say are unemployable, but they are. Yeah, yeah. That, that, um, that happens in every in every society, and there is this question about once you start to see the increased automation of particular roles, um, what do you do with people who have been doing those sort of low-skill jobs? I mean, at the moment, actually, McDonald's pays its employees very well relative to lots of other jobs in that sort of area, but you know McDonald's is pursuing automation uh, as far as it can, and eventually those jobs will vanish. So the question then becomes, when you've got maybe 10%, 20% of your population who um, are, for what whatever reason, not going to be able to be trained to be, uh, well, accountants are a bad example because we're going to automate accountancy anyway at mm-hmm. some point, but, but yeah. for instance, um, that sort of thing, then what do you do with them? I, you still need... We still need to look after these people to an extent. Lots of what's going to happen. We've had the 
I mean, to use the American terms, the blue-collar jobs replaced by robots and, and in mechanisation. I mean, the classic example I use is dockyard workers. It's not a thousand blokes hefting sacks of wheat anymore. It's one guy and a crane pouring wheat from a train into a ship, and it's operated by one person. This, uh, this Welsh model is particularly good because exactly as you're saying, this is... This is an amount of money um, which is sufficient for people to actually live on. If you're 18 years old and you were in full-time employment and you were living in Wales right now, you would, and you'd come from that sort of background, you would probably struggle to get close to that level of earning from having a from having a job. So it really is um, a decent amount of money. It's the amount of money that you would need to live on um, in that uh, in that sort of area without support from uh, any sort of other benefits um, that are going on. And that's the idealized model for this. So the criticism of uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income um, Projects, is either um, that they're not universal, which this one isn't, to be fair, um, or as a basic income, it doesn't meet the standard that anyone would need. So, you know, a couple of hundred pounds, um, for example, is the kind of level that you often see used in small-scale pilots. And ultimately, you end up saying, that doesn't really prove anything one way or the other. This is a good replacement for a group of people who can massively benefit um, from it and may provide a, a pathway to doing even more. This continues to me to sound like just such a fabulous idea and it's just in such wild contrast to the sort of stuff we do in Australia um, as Australians know or as at least as Australians who pay attention uh, to what we do with the poor people. Look, uh, let's, uh, let's change the topic, although it is still about money. Do not underestimate human beings' attempts to privatize literally everything. Um, and when they say to the moon, they're not just talking about crypto anymore. This is a new report from the neoliberal think tank, the Adam Smith Institute. And they're advocating for dividing the moon into parcels, privatizing the land, and renting them out for business and individuals. Uh, here is the cover of the paper, Space Invaders. Property rights on the moon. The author Rebecca Lowe says the paper comes from a Lockean-inspired rights-based classical liberal viewpoint and claims individual ownership of plots of moon land will promote economic growth. So many excellent buzzwords in that. Classic liberalism, Lockean, the Adam Smith Institute. This must be right up your alley, David. It, this actually prompted me to think that it is entirely possible that news from the future is incomprehensible to people from the past um, at all times. The idea of privatizing the moon prompted me to think about um, a story that happened recently, which was that um, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs um, took possession of a number of non-fungible tokens in order to um, recoup uh, value-added tax fees, which had not been paid. In Australia, that's uh, GST, goods and services tax. Yeah. Sure. And uh, the the headline for that was uh, basically HMRC NFT VAT fraud. And I'm going, that's just a wild string of letters <laughs> at that point. That's madness. 
and this is one of those stories that's in the same um, sort of idea. I love, I love this notion, which has persisted for some time, that the moon doesn't belong to anyone and that Mars and that the planets don't belong to anyone because the UN said so back in 1960-whatever it was that they made this particular declaration. The, the simple fact is, like all territory, the moon will belong to whoever goes there and stays there. Um, mm. And that's pretty much the, the system. And the idea that you can parcel it off um, before then is wild. I mean, technically, I have bought an acre of moonland for someone. No, you haven't. You've bought a piece Shh. of paper which which says you own the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Mate, yeah. I can sell you one of them. Sure. I mean, if it's a reasonable price, I'd love to own the Sydney Harbour Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll just, but it, I'll just it, write that down now. I'll fax it to you. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Um, the, it, it is absolutely ridiculous um, as a notion. And also, like the sort of NFT thing, like the cryptocurrency thing, if there is an amount of money that will be made out of accessing the moon, it will not be a democratized system, um, which benefits anyone. There will be the same established interests that exist now that benefit from everything else who will benefit from the exploitation of the resources of other things uh, in the solar system. And I think the um, the suggestion um, by Dr. Space Junk um, yes. was, uh, was one of the more interesting ways I've, I've seen of thinking about that sort of concept of how we um, – don't use capitalism to solve all of our problems which have been created by capitalism. She did speak, Dr Space Junk, Dr Alice Gorman from Lind Flinders University in South Australia. Been on the pod before, you people have listened to this, but if, in case for some wild reason uh, you haven't, uh, she has like a, yes indeed, a diametrically opposite point of view about the moon. NASA and other space agencies are planning to go to the moon. They want to get the water ice at the poles and turn that into fuel and oxygen and water for surface habitations and to further the dream of going from the moon to Mars. But all conceptions of space, this comes back to something we were talking about earlier, if there's nothing alive, there's kind of this idea that we have no moral obligation towards a place. Oh, okay, so this is like Australia's terra nullius. It's a, a it's a lunar nullius. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, so there's nothing on the moon that we have to consider apart from our own needs, and because of this, so there's no framework for considering how you might basically do what we would call on Earth environmental management. And in fact, there's barely even an idea of what the environment is on the moon. Now, building on from that, um, Dr Space Junk and I are both originally from South Australia, which was the colony uh, not set up as a prison colony global strategic thing by Britain. We, we know a bit about colonialism in Australia. Um, I was about to say not as much as Africa, but in fact more so than Africa because in Australia we did actually manage to kill nearly everyone, uh, whereas, oh, there, yeah, there's no way that that can be said uh, more tastefully. We did. We did kill nearly everyone. But in South Australia, 
the colony there was in fact a property scam along the lines of what is being proposed. Because Australia was terra nullius, so a bunch of people in London formed the South Australia Company and it was all the money that these guys had been paid to compensate them for not having slaves anymore. So, yes, when, when slavery was banned, it, it wasn't the slaves who got compensation. It was the slave owners who owned slaves in the colonies got compensation for the, quote, value, unquote, of their slaves. So a bunch of them, uh, there's a whole, yeah, there's a lot of things down this rabbit hole. But these guys formed the South Australia Company and basically said, well, you know, those colonies are doing very well. So... Dear, dear government, if you give us like a document and and uh, you know a couple of ships and a few marines, we'll do this. So they arrived in South Australia. They carved up the area in land and said, "Here it is. If if you wanted to invest, you could. You got a big chunk of land. If you uh, came along, like my great great great." grandfather, I think that's the right number of greats, as a carpenter, you have a contract to work for the colonial authority for two years, after which you got a plot of land and could do whatever you want. Uh, and if you were good, hard-working uh, farmers from uh, uh, Prussia, which is now bits of Poland, it came out through uh, the free port of Danzig, which is now Gdansk in Poland, then if you wanted to come and do farming, you would be given a plot of land. And that's my whole mother's side of the family, which are the Barossa Deutsch winemakers and blah, 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 and so on. This was the deal. Uh, it is the um, it is the normal process of of colonization. Um, yep. Certainly, anything that's involved the British settler colonization, but there are sure. other kinds. Um, it, it is um, the the possession of um, all things, uh, essentially, yes. and uh, the uh, the most expedient way of doing that, which is normally the most inhumane way of doing that, um, essentially. Um, but it's um, it's one of those things that seldom. Well, I don't know that it seldom gets talked about, but it is the the scale of the um, the atrocities that British mm. colonization is sort of responsible for is is broadly um, ignored because of this odd sort of change of ownership that has happened through the collapse of empire. Um, in that the British Empire, as it was at the time, killed tens of millions of Native Americans um, in. Mm. America. Um, that's after however many were killed by viruses spread by Columbus and everybody else um, who came in uh, subsequently. Smallpox and syphilis is a, a, a wonderful thing for colonial powers. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the, the same sort of argument. And to be honest, I, I really very much doubt that we kept any sort of records of how many Africans we killed during the uh, the sort of colonization um, of Africa. It's only when these things become a little more, bit, bit more proximate in time um, that we start to understand a little bit more about the terrible things that um, we've actually done um, and are still not really um, in any ways coming to terms with. So much is coming out of personal diaries and things now, now that such things are being digitised. Uh, and I, you don't need to go into the State Library of New South Wales to read the 
the colonizers' diaries, we can pull them all up online and read them and be horrified by their stories. One of the most powerful... Uh, I don't know whether I can find this grab from the ABC archives, but one of the most powerful things I ever heard, there was a journalist called Tim Bowden who had been a war correspondent in Vietnam and others, but people know him as more as a cuddly social history interviewer, not knowing his history. He's retired now, still alive, I think. Anyway, he was interviewing a retired pol- – this was in the 1980s, early 1980s. Uh, he did this interview with a retired police sergeant in Alice Springs in the centre of Australia. And he spoke openly on tape about how he and the other cops would go out and beat up the blacks, basically. Mm. And and there was the ki- there was an implication that yes, yeah, some of them died, whatever, get rid of the fucking blacks. <laughs> I, I don't think that's anything even particularly unusual to, to Australia. No. Um, no, of course not. We're course having not. we're having a, a fairly big issue with um the, the Metropolitan Police, who are the, the police body that's responsible for the greater London area, um, just now in that uh, the uh, Commissioner of uh, the Met uh, recently resigned. Um, not the for... The wonderfully named Ms Cressida Dick. Yeah. Uh, not for um, the political uh, machinations which she fell into um, through not investigating Downing Street parties and then investigating Downing Street parties in a way that would prevent um, uh, a political investigation of them. Um, but um, for uh, sexism, racism, all that sort of stuff, which is endemic um, to the Metropolitan Police and probably always has been. Oh, oh, and we have a we have a ta- we have a bit of that here. You would be shocked to hear. Uh, really, I'm I'm amazed. Yeah. Mm. Um, we can't make any jokes from this point, can we? I can't. I can't find my way to one. No. Let's take a break, and I'll do the housekeeping. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope you're enjoying uh, this rather extended conversation with uh, David F. Porteous. I will tell you, in the second half, it gets much. Much sillier, uh, so there'll be a change of tone very soon. Uh, but first, three items of housekeeping. One, uh, syphilis did not go from Europe to the Americas. It went from the Americas back to Europe. A bit of reverse colonial infection there. I mean, I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, second, uh, this is the second last episode of the um of the summer series, uh, I will be uh, pitching you details uh, of the uh, autumn series, I suppose. It'll be very, 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 very soon. Uh, then the next episode in this summer series, the final one, will be the one uh, we recorded oh, more than a week ago now with uh, Justin Warren. Uh, so that'll be another one, a fun one to edit. Uh, then, no, I won't predict what's in the autumn series. I always have to change things. Uh, And finally, of course, uh, thank you, dear listener, 
for supporting this podcast. Uh, as you know, it is supported by you uh, and this episode. Thank you once again to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Summer Series 2022 possible fundraising campaign. If you would like to support the podcast, always good to do. It's good for me, obviously. Uh, go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedic.com slash tip. And, uh, yeah, throw a few bucks into the, the tip jar. That would be lovely. Before we get to the trigger words, David, wasn't was there something you wanted to add to that? I was thinking back to um, the Services Australia thing and the robo-debt um, issue that you flagged up. And literally, again, I learned entirely about this from links that you've sent me. Um, but it but it is one of these things that I look at the, the extraordinary nature of, of two problems, um, which is one, a government or government agency ever saying we have no duty of care to our citizens, oh, which is I the most we extraordinary didn't do this. thing. Yeah. Um, the idea that you can abdicate responsibility for looking after people simply because you don't have a specific legal duty to do so. Um, I mean, it, it wouldn't fly with Superman. There is this understanding that power and responsibility come hand in hand and you can't have one and then abdicate um, the other. Um, and the other one is the, the sort of casual uh, nature um, by which we are willing to expend hundreds of millions just to make sure that a minority of people are not getting something that they, quote, don't deserve. Um, and it was really interesting that Services Australia spent um, $600 million um, to recoup $785 million. And you, you're looking at that and just going, surely it would have been better just to leave that extra $180 million out there with people who perhaps were undeserving um, in whatever sense you want to do that, rather than waste so many people's time and so much money um, trying to, quote, fix it. It is the most phenomenally appalling thing, and yet the view is still there in the property-owning classes, which is very much the thing in Australia because the government is continually, or governments, the state governments have continually given the impression that property values will just continue to go up forever. And, you know, this is boomers' retirement thing is they've bought a couple of investment properties to rent out to, you know, the proles, uh, the scum, you know, and and they expect that to be a risk-free investment forever. So we have things like the fact that Services Australia has just tendered out for a shitload of either covert surveillance equipment or private investigators. There's a bunch of tenders out. Yes, to send private investigators out to see whether people living on $40 a day, $1,200 a month, have failed to say they're in a relationship. Because, of course, if two people on the dole are in a relationship, it gets cut down a bit because well they're they're sharing costs aren't they even the yeah the idea that you would share house um to to share costs which you have to do these days i mean for fuck's sake 
student share houses were a thing back when rent was actually affordable. Uh, but if any of them are doing the horizontal beastie, oh, well, if you're fucking, you're in a relationship. There you go. And then everything becomes uh, cheaper, obviously. It's that magical thing where if you actually go into a shop, um, the shopkeeper will ask you, uh, are you having sex with someone who's on benefits? And if you are, they'll give you a 40% discount. Um, yeah. It's not well known, but it is the law. Um, so, hmm. so try it out, everybody. Um, just, just take a video on your phone. Oh, they will need evidence, obviously. Show your local shopkeeper. You or your benefits officer. <laughs> you can't expect them to take your word for it, obviously. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I mean, you're sort of benefit-seeking scum. Obviously, you'll need to provide uh, evidence um, of these right. things. Well, actually, um, um, this is where the Australian approach is much better because the department is funding the private investigators, so they'll they'll do the video for you. Well, that's great. I mean, obviously, you'll expect higher production standards from professionals. Yes. Um, the thing, I, I'm sort of in favour of private investigators, but only in so far as they are sort of 1920s Sam Spade type of investigators. Mm. As long as they're um, wearing hats and smoking heavily and hanging out in bars, um, all that sort of, and in black and white, then I'm entirely in favour of it. I think that but that's that's a fucking dead giveaway, though. If if you see someone in a bar, you see and someone just in black who is and white. black and white. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you'll know they're the grain. You can someone. see the film grain on them. But yeah. the, there's that little bit of honesty. It's like with a police officer who's undercover. If you ask them if they're a police officer, they have to tell you. That is not and, true. That and is if not you see true. someone who is in black and white and has a film grain over them and you say to them, are you a private investigator? They have to tell you. Yeah. These are these are rules. I take back what I said about it not being true. This is true. These are rules. I'm 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 sorry. At this point I feel I should mention that on Twitter the other day, well, last night. Someone whose Twitter handle is Catholics for Cromwell, which I thought was rather nice. Uh, there's a lot to think about there. Says, okay, so in Australia there is th this quote think tank unquote called the Institute of Public Affairs, which is it's a neoliberal, you know, laissez-faire economics um, lobby group, and we know that it gets a lot of funding from such uh, luminaries as the tobacco industry, the mining industry, uh, etc. So that's the IPA. And a chap called Gideon Rosner, who is one of the, the children that they employ to say outrageously libertarian things on television. This is, this is the pathway. You go from doing some innocuous thing like law at university, you join the, the young liberals, um, at university, which of course is the young Tories in UK language. Yep. And then you become, you either go to the IPA as a researcher or you become a, a minion in your local Liberal MP's office. And then you, you go to Parliament. Well, you should, you know, that's, that's the thing. That is much of the Liberal Party today. I'm sure it's much the same in the Conservative Party in the UK. 
Absolutely. Um, that I read. The, the tradition is that one does a uh, degree in politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford or Cambridge, and then one either joins a think tank or the civil service or uh, government, basically, uh, as a yeah. uh, spad, probably, rather than actually standing as a member of parliament. Um, I think the interesting thing about this guy who's um, who's saying he he got some gin out of a bucket in Thailand for $4 and realized that the nanny state back home wouldn't allow it. Um, uh, it would be nice if people had Damascene revelations that weren't just about them being pricks. You know, it would be, it would be great if people were like wandering through the streets and they saw a homeless person and went, Oh my God, we need to reform our housing policy rather as than- opposed to burning a 50 pound note in front of them. Uh, uh, yeah. As yeah. As or your staggering prime around did. your prime minister, mate. I I didn't vote for him, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, he says, jumping all over the running sheet because this is a fabulous quote from one of your uh, compatriots, uh, Susie McCabe, excellent comedian from Scotland. She had this to say on. This program, BBC Debate Night. You already know this is going to be a shitful television program. You have a show called Question Time. In Australia, it's called Q&A. It's the same format. And here we just call it The Bad Program. Okay, I... In, in all honesty, I was wondering what that was because I was aware that you had it and then I'd seen you referring to the bad program and now I've joined things up in my head. It's the Australian version of, of Question Time because uh, in Britain you have Prime Minister's questions once a week in Parliament. We have Question Time at 2pm every single day of Parliament. Oh, God. And it's not just to the Prime Minister. You can ask any minister. I, I assume that he would just run out of things to say. Well, well, yes, that's that's broadly the point. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, this is what Susie McCabe said. Since 2014, we've had three general elections and an EU referendum. And I think we do now look at Westminster differently. And to the, to the girl who's 19 who said, oh, it's not about one prime minister, and it's, it's not, I'm 42 years old, 29 years of my life have been ruled by a government, but not that I didn't vote for, or my family didn't vote for, but my country Absolutely. didn't vote for it, right? Now, that's, that's, yeah, oh, that's democracy. And then I travel the country and I see what's happening in the South, I see what happens in the north of England and I've seen the red walls fall and everything like that. And when we discuss our relationship with Westminster now in 2022, I don't think you're discussing that relationship and through the, the prism of Scottish nationalism. I think we are now discussing that relationship through the prism of English nationalism because it is English introverted nationalism that has gave us our current government, a government which had to move right of centre to combat the UKIP vote. It's an interesting analysis. Hmm. And correct, as, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it is the reason we had the initial referendum on European Union membership was because the Conservative Party was threatening to fracture 
Um, and that was why our prime minister at the time, David Cameron, um, went for it anyway, never believing that it could happen because obviously he was incompetent. Um, and uh, then it did happen and he became the first prime minister of the 21st century to resign in disgrace, uh, but hopefully not the last. Um, is what Wait, I'd he say. didn't want it to happen? No, no, absolutely uh- not. Okay, I'm confused. There was there was no political party which was in favour of us leaving the European Union, except for um, UK, UKIP, which barely exists now, really, because why would it? Um, essentially, to be fair to UKIP, Brexit has turned out to be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? There's 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 this. <laughs> <laughs> the the blessing that COVID has given for for Brexit is that people don't understand to an extent they don't understand why we've run out of everything um, so far. So when we when we hit lockdown, there's this. I don't know what order to take this in because there's so much nonsense um, here. But we we hit the first lockdown, and mm. I'm sure like everyone else, we ran out of toilet paper, pasta, and bread. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, and then it, that's the 21st century ritual now. Yeah. And then what happened was that we all decided that we were going to bake our own bread. So then uh-huh. we ran out of flour for six months. Mm-hmm. And then we had this big national mystery about how everyone put on so much weight. And it's like you force fed yourselves like you were a <laughs> goose whose liver you were going to harvest for patty. What do you mean, how did you put on so much weight? It's like, oh, I'm getting fewer steps in. No, you're eating a loaf of bread every day. <laughs> but and, and a kilogram of spaghetti bolognese, which yeah. is, of course, the only fucking pasta that white people know how to cook. Exactly. Oh, sorry, Italians are white people now too. I keep forgetting. When I was sure. a kid, Italians were wogs. But now they're white people because they're, they're insufficiently brown to be sure. the other. So we've got this thing where at the port of uh, the port of Dover, this is where most of the trucks come in and out of Britain because mm. um, we're we're basically doing most of our trade over just like you know a couple of miles of water um, essentially half the time with uh, with Europe. Um, so a slightly different situation than Australia that most of your neighbours yes. are much much further away. Um, also, but also we grow wheat. Sure, <laughs> um, and so, sheep. And so we have beef. We have sheep. We have sheep and beef. Yeah, but they're pissy little Welsh sheep. We have proper sheep, merinos. Right. Well, for wool. Okay, I see your point. Okay, so we have the situation where there used to be um, a camera which was pointed at the road um, that would mm-hmm. that showed the trucks lining up to go to, to Dover. And when we finally left um, the EU and there were changes in obviously customs arrangements and things like that, there was a tailback of trucks for mile upon mile upon mile. And all of the things that were in these trucks, and obviously there were, there were trucks on the other side trying to come in, um, a lot of these being food items, things were just being destroyed um, in the process um, of doing that. And our solution to how we solved that was to point the camera away from the trucks. We didn't, awesome. we didn't solve the, the issue. It's still an issue. We, at the worst point of the pandemic, had shortages of um, lots of things um, in Britain. And what we did was a sort of Soviet-era propaganda piece where we put up pictures of the items that would normally be on shelves. Um, 
I mean, the only thing that we had in absolute abundance were potatoes, but you couldn't actually tell people that we had an abundance of potatoes because they do unreasonable things like buy lots of potatoes. Mm-hmm. And then we wouldn't have any of those either. Um, so we, we, are, uh, we are still not coming to terms with this. We still have this sort of um, COVID era sort of supply chain stuff, which is providing a bit of cover for the full implications of Brexit. Um, but all of this will come to a head in the next sort of year or so um, when we start to see lots of businesses make decisions like actually we can't trade with our biggest trading partner, which is Europe, um, anymore. So we're probably going to have to relocate. And all of this will happen once that sort of um, COVID era um, stability, if you like, is removed. I don't think the people who push Brexit understand how fluid global capital is these days. I don't think they understood anything, but yes, I would I would <laughs> accept that they did not understand that. Ah, <sighs> dear. Let's do some trigger words, David. Okay. Okay. This, he says, searching for where he put it on his desk, is the glass jar of transparency. We will come back to that because two people who are definitely not trolls have uh, put in trigger words specifically for you. Dave Hall, I mean, who basically is a troll, says, Haggis. That's his trigger word. I mean, you are being tokenized. You are now a token Scott. Sure. I've been reduced down to one single uh, attribute of my personality. Um, yeah. I accept that. Yeah. Um, that's fine. Um, I have gone on a spiritual journey with Haggis throughout my life. Um, I used to believe that there was nothing more profoundly disgusting than the idea that you would take all of the offal from a sheep and you would cook it in another bit of offal from a sheep. Um, and then you would serve that with the worst sides imaginable. Um, mm. And the journey that I've been on is to say, actually, the problem with the traditional haggis is that people keep serving it with mashed potatoes and turnip. And it's the mm. sides that are the problem with haggis. It's actually a fantastic dish. You just need to be able to eat it with something else. I agree. I really like haggis. Like the first time I tried haggis, and it was properly cooked, all of that, not mm-hmm. one from a can, because that's a thing. Um, I thought, this is great. This is basically a meatloaf, right? It's grain, it's animal parts, Sure. Yeah. In, in the in the sort of broader sense, I would I would accept that. It's very similar. Yeah. 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 And and indeed, a, a Chinese Australian friend of mine, the Starkey Platypus, who uh, alas hasn't been on Twitter much of late for for reasons. Um, but yes, he visited Scotland and again had loves it. And you can't. I mean, you can't. Very 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 few places in Australia actually make haggis, and there is no way I will have. A canned haggis, because that just seems like sacrilege. 
Yeah, and it's one of those things that would seem to fall into like banned goods for transport basically everywhere <laughs> in the world. I mean, yeah. you'd you'd have more luck trying to smuggle black tar heroin into Australia than a than a fresh haggis. So that said, I think you pr- well depends how you do it. If you tried to get it past, <laughs> I'm sorry. If you tried I'm just to get imagining it past someone smuggling, force. yeah, go on. No, seriously, it, if you should see the way that. I mean, uh, again, this is an example of you know racism in law enforcement, which is such a rare thing as as we've discussed. But if you turn up from an East Asian country looking East Asian and you've got a bag full of what the fuck is this food stuff? Yep. I mean, Australia takes biosecurity very, very seriously. Yeah, what's you know what's it? Oh, what's it? Yeah, yeah, mate. We're not worried about the heroin. What's this fucking sausage you got here? You know, you yeah. are in deep trouble. Yeah. So, kids, um, that's the thing. And don't bring your fucking drugs in your baggage through the airport. That they check that. They have little sniffy dogs. Um, no, no, shove it in a container somewhere. They only search a certain small percentage of containers. And if you haven't been communicating about that in unencrypted media, then the Australian Federal Police don't... don't, don't well, shit. Um, this is now a detailed instruction in the Commission of Crime <laughs> and I am committing a federal inf- offence. So Luke, there we go. L- let me do some cover for you here. Look, <laughs> I you. would say, I would say that... A good rule is to make friends in countries that you're visiting um, and not have to rely on an international supply of drugs. Just find something domestic. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Don't smuggle it yourself. Just know people who are there. <laughs> Thank you, Dave Hall, for that trigger word. That well, I'll end up in jail. Brenton Ralph. Hi, Brenton. Um, oh, he, he suggests whiskey as a trigger word, but with an E. Do you care about the spelling of the word whiskey? Um, well, I mean, it's Maybe. from a different country, is the thing. So Scottish whiskey or Scotch. Yeah, like colour and labour and, yeah. Uh, sure, but it's uh, Scottish whiskey is without an E and uh, Irish whiskey is with an E. Is with an E, yeah. Yeah, it's as simple okay. as that. Um, and to be honest, there's uh, terrible whiskey everywhere. Um, yes. The E is not really an indicator of quality one way or the other, um, I think. That does bring the mental image of putting an E into your whiskey, which could be a good night out. It could also be a deep, deep mistake. I think you want to make friends with people in a foreign country and have them introduce <laughs> you to to their local alcohol and their local... Uh, any vowels, really. Any vowels will be fine. doesn't have to be yep. an E. So going back to Gideon Rosner's problem, he did have the bucket of gin for $4, which is what, like £2.50 or something. But the problem is he didn't have the, um, the methamphetamine, not methamphetamine, that's, that's excessive, the ease, the, the MDMA in his alcohol. That was his problem, I think. I do would have made a is. lot more friends in Thailand that way. Sure. One of my favourite things along these lines is when I first moved to Sydney about 20 years ago, lived in Ashfield, and there was a, like, a, that's that's one of the Chinese villages in Sydney. 
And there was a place that was open late and we would often go there to grab food late. And after we'd been there a few times, my, my housemate, who was a cigarette smoker, would often buy a packet of cigarettes when he was there. And after a while, the cigarettes didn't come from the counter behind. They came from a brown paper wrapper bag under the counter and were both cheaper and without any sort of compliance stickers on them. And I thought, you know you've been adopted in a community when you as two white people can go in and and just get dodgy cigarettes. Is that multiculturalism? Is is that the future that liberals want? Oh, no, <laughs> not, not liberals in an Australian sense. I mean something else for that. Um yeah, I I think that would be a I think that would be a wonderful experience. Smuggled booze and cigarettes. How basic to society is this? Yeah, do you know that um, Scotland introduced um, uh, a scheme a couple of years back called minimum alcohol pricing, which basically means that um, there used to be lots of um, cheap booze that was available in supermarkets, so you could get twelve cans of whatever for like nine pounds, that sort of thing. Um, which would be relatively cheap and massive bottles of um, uh, cider. Um, the, the the brand name of cider probably doesn't mean anything to you, but it gives you a sense. It would be something called like white lightning um, or something like that. <laughs> Again, you don't need to have had it to know exactly what it is, um, basically. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. the minimum alcohol- Marketing is a wonderful thing. <laughs> it is. Um, the minimum- right, Apart from marketers. The, uh, the minimum uh, pricing basically said that you weren't allowed to sell really cheap booze um, in Scotland anymore um, on the justification that what would happen is that people um, were spending too much uh, money uh, consuming it. Um, and I think the outcome of that so far has been that people are spending more money on the same amount of alcohol um, now as a result of having done that. I don't think there's any kind of reliable system that persuades people against drinking alcohol if they want alcohol. I mean, this has been proved throughout history, really. I, I believe America tried this. Yeah, the, the prohibition era stuff, again, it, it comes back to I'm, I'm fully in favour of um, an absolute ban on alcohol as long as you can get it on every street corner because it makes it seem much more uh, exciting. Um, if you have to mm. do it that way, how long has it been since um, you know you encountered any actual difficulty purchasing alcohol? How long has it been since you experienced the sort of thrill of maybe persuading um, a slightly older, um, more adult-looking boy to go into a shop and buy some alcohol for you and your friends to um, also drink um, on a street corner or down the beach or something like that? It's something that we've lost as societies, <laughs> and I think. I think there should be this frisson that is reintroduced where um, maybe it's uh, smuggled cigarettes, maybe it's uh, a haggis which has been transported perhaps in a body cavity across across international boundaries. It's a haggis um, turducken, really, isn't it? It is, it is a meatloaf <laughs> in a body cavity in a body cavity. <laughs> That's fantastic, actually, yeah, it is. <laughs> you you probably want like a plastic film layer over it as well, just you're planning to eat it afterwards. Um, but 
I, I mean, I would recommend that, yeah. yes. Um, also, the traditional shape isn't going to work out. You're going to want something a bit more sausage-shaped. Um, uh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Just use um, a different part of the of, shape. All of that is... <laughs> God. Um, uh, yeah, but, but all of that is, is something are. that... What do you want about? Yeah. Sure, sure, abs- absolutely. I mean, that's clearly what I was thinking of um, when you said that. I I feel like there's a lot of the excitement of this. And look, you've got someone who's saying, I went to Thailand and I had a bucket of gin for $4 and it changed my perspective on the world. You could do that domestically. You could have that kind of experience. It just wouldn't be about the price of something. It would be about, you know, oh, I was taken into a back room in a Chinese restaurant and I was given this weird thing that had snake blood in it or something like that. And it changed my perspective on the world. And why not? This should be done in year 11 of school. End of term and a second term uh, when you're, what, 16 years old, bucket of gin. And a meatloaf up the ass. <laughs> if you send children to the right private schools, that will happen anyway. <laughs> Fair point. I did go to one of those private schools. <laughs> terrible, terrible business. You did mention the uh, alcohol pricing thing. I will note that has been suggested uh, for the Northern Territory of Australia. Uh, where if you're on benefits, you don't actually get money transferred into your account. You have uh, what's called an Indu card, and you can present that card at supermarkets to buy food and other essentials, uh, but you don't actually get cash or its equivalent. Can you use that to buy alcohol? I take it no. That's one of yeah, the, is that one of the things? No. Um, we have uh, we have an odd um, situation where these kinds of restrictions, which are, are pretty common again, like policing how people spend money, is generally a pretty bad idea, um, and also resource intensive, and uh, often gets you bad results for doing it anyway. But I, uh, as part of my professional life, do focus groups from time to time. I'm one of those people. Um, and yes, we run into researcher you have uh, put on your Twitter profile. <laughs> that's right, God, yeah. That's a lot of fucking sins. It really does. Um, and one of the things that um, we run into problems with from time to time is this notion that you can't give people money for showing up to things, and we have to push back against it all the time. And we Do you uh, give people the- money for showing up to your focus groups? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. why why wouldn't you? It's, a, it's payment well, for yes, their time. It- for coming yeah, along. Absolutely. Um, and oftentimes this isn't just about um, sometimes people will experience genuine hardship through participation. So even if it's something that they would feel passionately about, you know, even if it was a government policy that would directly impact them, the truth is they may have childcare, they may be passing up the opportunity for a shift at work, they may be, you know, missing out on all sorts of opportunities. You have to mm. pay people to participate in these things if you want to get a representative good sample um, of people who are actually doing these things. But we, we get pushback on things like, well, instead of money, can you give people supermarket vouchers of the same value? And I'd say, you understand that supermarkets sell things that people can use to exchange for any other items that they might encounter in the world. So the idea that 
if you give someone, uh, you know, like £30, something like that for coming along to an hour session, um, if you gave them that, they might go out and spend it on drugs. Um, (gasps) Yeah, exactly. The thing is, they could just go to their local supermarket and they could buy alcohol with that voucher instead, and they could certainly swap it for something with someone else. Supermarket vouchers, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can get 80% on the face value for that in cash. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So oh. it's it's one of these weird, uh, again, policing systems of uh, behavior where it's like we should be somehow morally responsible for, for a lot of these choices that people are actually making um, when the reality is there's we're not fixing anything. We're only creating no. like obstructions. We're very good at that. It's it's a whole moral attitude to you know the poor's are poor because they have a moral weakness or something. Yeah, they don't work hard enough. They should put some effort in. And of course, in Australia, now that I think of it, we have this thing called mutual obligation. That once you've been on not New Start but Job Seeker for a while then you are expected to do things as your obligation for receiving that. Uh, it used what, to be what called sort of work, things? It used to be called work for the doll. So you okay. are – you don't get money for it, but you are farmed out to – I mean, to be fair, community organisations or whatever, but you have to do something – Um, in order to receive it. Now, I was the uh, manager of a community organisation at one point, 3D Radio in Adelaide. And yes, we had people doing, um, paying off their parking fines or dope possession, 100 hours of community service. We could apply to, to get those people and we got them doing, you know, routine office shit and I loved my office manager because if any of them complained that the work was boring she just said right I'll phone your parole officer and you'll be out mucking shit out of the river torrents tomorrow morning if you'd prefer loved it um okay but yes you're expected to do that not because you've committed a criminal offence and are being punished for it but because you're existing and getting benefits. Yeah. Working for poverty is uh, is a big thing. Um, mm. Whether you're actually receiving benefits or whether you're um, receiving any sort of um, compensatory system where you're in work but having wages topped up to uh, a living uh, level because your mm. actual salary doesn't quite um, reach that sort of thing. Um, the idea of... Um, actually working for it is um one of those things that gets floated from time to time here um and i think it it's one of those things that would be popular with the electorate which is a a monstrous beast um but it is the problem of how you administer that kind of system and how you scale it up to any sort of um reasonable level so thank you brenton ralph uh for your trigger word of whiskey with an e was that what that was for? Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> that's that's where we went. There's a reason they're called trigger words. Uh, okay, I'm going to draw one from the jar now, the glass jar of transparency. Well, this one, Peter, leave it in again. Look, this basically means Peter's giving lots of money, so 
Love it, Peter. We'll happily do your words. His trigger word is camembert. Ooh. A cheese-based question. Was there a Duke of Camembert? I don't know. Mm. Tell me about what, what, is, what is your attitude towards cheese, Prime Minister? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm an enormous <laughs> supporter of the cheese industry. I'm, I'm fairly mm. certain that there, are entire, that there are entire cows who owe their continued existence as not steak to my interest in cheese. Um, I'm, Can I interrupt I'm, there with an important point? Because I grew up on a dairy farm. A, you are, you are not in your youth, you're a middle-aged man, none of those cows are still alive and owing you, you, your, their existence to anyone. And B... Dairy cows don't become steak. They become pet food. Well, that's grim. Dairy cows and beef cattle are very different critters. Okay. Mm. Well, I, I like to think that there's probably like a continuous line of cows who are like aged out. Back to the Plantagenets. Yeah. <laughs> a, long, <laughs> a long line of cows stretching back to time immemorial who have been providing you with cheese. Um, and indeed, you know, I'm, it doesn't have to be cows. You know, like sheep cheese is sometimes very nice as well. Um, I think so camembert is, is a awesome. is a um, is a is a cow cheese though. Yes. Um, so I mean, I I prefer a blue cheese if I'm honest. Um, probably again, it's one of those things. It's like um, like haggis. I think you're. Maybe it's that your taste buds, like, you know when you get tinnitus in your ears, and obviously as you age, yes, you pick up more and more of that as like the um, the hairs in your ears which detect sound or whatever the hell, however the hell it works. Um, that is how it to, works, but I'll go whatever. with it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not answering for the science. It's science. I'll ask Dr. Trent sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whatever happens, um, the the vibrations uh, basically you become deaf to particular frequencies of sound um, over time. Um, that's why younger people can hear a, a wider range of sound frequencies, particularly higher frequencies. Um, I think maybe the same thing happens with a sense of taste. So people talk about um, a maturing um, of taste, about acquiring a taste for. Um, something, but I think the reality is that your sense of smell and your sense of taste dull as you age, and you need a bigger kick. You need uh, you need more oomph from your food to get the same sort of results. So you know, same with sex, really. Yeah, when you're a when you're a young lad, then uh, a bit of <laughs> a bit of cheddar and a hand job will do you fine. Um, but <laughs> but when you age up, some people you know pay their way through university that way. Well, the cheddar's an unusual way to do it, but fine. Um, um, Rich variety, etc. <laughs> sure, um, but yeah, as as you knock on a bit, um, then you need uh, you need something uh, stronger, and that's when I've picked up blue cheese, and uh, I love I love blue cheese. So the camembert is a little bit mild for me, if I'm perfectly mm -hmm. honest. If it's on a cheese board, I won't kick it. I won't kick it off a cheese board. But um, I would prefer something a bit stronger. Looking at the sexual angle, though, because I think we must, camembert would work better as a lubricant than, say, red Leicester. 
That is true, but it's not one of the main points that the cheese marketing board will make in their communications. Their loss, um, their loss. It's true. Um, I I think that's that's true. You have to really heat it up to get it runny, though. Not that hot. It's not. A, well, no, no, I don't know. Hot. Sorry, you're in Scotland. You're in Scotland. I'm in Australia. I mean, <laughs> camembert on you know a 35, 40 degree <clears throat> Celsius day. It's as the phrase goes. It's a bit runny and possibly more runny than you like it. So I'm, I'm That's imagining. A fucking callback, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like even though I didn't notice it during my trip to Australia. Um, that there must be like twenty percent of your country's cheese reserves which are liquid at any time. It's yep. um, whereas in on Scotland, the other hand, Australia did invent the refrigerator, and we use it liberally. That can't possibly be true. The no, refrigerator. No, no. Melbourne, Melbourne journalist invented refrigeration, which was then used in ships to send chilled lamb, etc., to Britain, um, rather than. Ha- Look it up. Well, fucking hell, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it now. I mean, I'm I believe you. name this I've not, guy. I've not um, Wikipedia, I've not Google searched any of your other um, statements so far. <laughs> but I think, no, no, no. I think this one is fair. Uh, well, the history of artificial refrigeration began when Scottish professor, of course, William Cullen, designed uh-huh. a small refrigerating machine in 1755. Uh, and some bloke called Faraday. Fucking Faraday. Who was he? I love this is the most this is the most Australian version of history that I can possibly imagine. It's like you're ignoring yeah, sure, five other people invented the refrigerator <laughs> before this Australian guy, but the Australian one is the one that counts. Yes. And I I quote The first practical vapour compression refrigeration system was built by James Harrison, a British journalist who had immigrated to Australia. His 1856 patent was for a vapour compression system using ether, alcohol or ammonia. He built a mechanical ice-making machine in 1851 on the banks of the Barwon River at Rocky Point in Geelong, Victoria, and his first commercial ice-making machine followed in 1854. And I will say, to put that into context, 1851, when he designed it, was also the first year of the Melbourne Gold Rush, after which Melbourne became the second richest city on the planet after London, or if you listen to friend of the podcast, uh, Fiona Patton, MLC, richer than London. I don't trust that woman. Um, by 1861... Because, course, you, a, here we go. Here we go. By 1861... Sorry, I'm ranting you about refrigeration... At you. I am ranting at you about refrigeration. This is important. By 1861, a dozen systems were in operation. He later entered the debate of how to compete against the American advantage of unrefrigerated beef sales to the UK. And in 1873, the sailing ship Norfolk took the first experimental refrigerated beef to the UK. On a sailing ship. There you go. I mean, I... I know that they made the film... And there's some shit later about the Germans. They made the film Master and Commander on the Far Side of the World. 
Um, and I don't understand why they chose that rather than the story of refrigerated beef being brought from Australia <laughs> to the UK. I, I, I know, right? Clearly, a much better story. I don't even know what. Uh, I don't even know what they were. It was rubber plants or something like that. I feel like Master and Commander was about that. Breadfruit, Bread yes, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, this this is an untold story. I'm sure that there are, mm. there are heroes and villains in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd watch it if anyone from Netflix is listening. Thank you, Peter Leverdink, for the trigger word camembert. <laughs> this- that's weird. I mean, you know, from um, I, I I like it though, because um, obviously you know that we do um, on my podcast, which has been in abeyance for some time. Um, cheerful despair. This is uh, the yeah, cheerful despair, which I uh, about a year in abeyance. It's a look. Look it up, folks. Uh, listening to cheerful despair, most of it will survive because it's about. Nothing. Yeah, absolutely. We've resisted as that's the tagline. I'm not being insulting. No, it's true. The podcast about nothing. Um, we we've resisted trying to be topical as much as we can, and and one of the games that we play is to completely randomise the thing that we talk about. So we have ra- a random question that we discuss, and then we have uh, opponents, um, which are. Uh, argued the case for in relation to that particular question which sounds very complex but actually when you listen to it it's very easy but the sort of um the random element is priceless um in these things so yeah cam and bear leads us directly to Fre- uh, fletcher christian's a cunt um <laughs> i do like debate bag which is the the segment you mentioned because it's essentially you'll draw out okay uh the question is Something like who would make the better James Bond, and it's you end up something like is it Justin Bieber or Marie Antoinette? Yeah, that that would be an yeah. ideal uh, thing to argue there, and the answer obviously is Marie Antoinette in that case. Yeah, but oh, clearly that wasn't such a good example. Yeah, Marie Antoinette is the my, way to my go there. F- my favorite one, I think, of all time. Um, is I think I've maybe got two, but, but I'll pick this one, which is um, who's the better um, horror movie monster for a Christmas-themed horror film set in uh, a newsagent's just outside a train station? And the That's two, quite a specific question. It is, but the specific questions are the best ones. Um, and the, the two candidates that we argued against were um, Michelangelo from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and <laughs> and the actor Tom Hanks, and oh wow, and the reason why it ended up being again obviously Tom Hanks is because well, spoilers because I want to insert this segment if we can find <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, um, I don't even remember what episode it was now. Okay, well maybe we won't. I'll, I'll just everyone um, just the- listen from episode one all the way through, and you oh, will get to it. Episode one, shit. Start at episode okay. three and you'll be fine. Um, but That's my great theory about any media item. Always start with the third one. Sorry, you'll, I'm interrupting you. It's not right. like you're a woman or anything. I'm so so ashamed. So the reason why it's Tom Hanks, why he's the best monster, is because of the tagline for the film that gets generated because of the parts that he's played. In particular, it's him uh, having been in Philadelphia as a gay lawyer who's dying from AIDS and him being Forrest Gump. 
And it's the tagline for this horror film is, uh, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, except this Christmas, it's AIDS. And that's just... You can see that on a horror movie poster. And that is um, flawless as, a, as an argument for why it should be Tom Hanks. And that's exactly the sort of thing that we argue about all the time. It's worth listening to. I'm looking forward to it coming back. And next, we're going to talk about Mr. Porteous's books. Mr. David F. Porteous, I have started reading your first novel, which is called Singular, and I'm quite enjoying it. What's, what's your elevator pitch? Imagine a nearly possible future where instead of dying, you can transfer your consciousness into a sort of virtual environment. Um, and that virtual environment takes on all the properties of um, any sort of game world that you can actually um, imagine. And then what are the consequences um, of you doing that? What does uh, a society look like? What are the people who make those kind of choices to either um, die or live virtually forever um, look like? Um, and that's it. And I wrote that um, more than 10 years ago now. Um mm with a predicted date for that happening uh, being uh, another 10 years in the future from now. And it feels like uh, Mark Zuckerberg is probably heading the world in that direction, if he can swing it. I, I am enjoying it because one of the characters very early up, and, and clearly I can see a plot arc here, she is trying to explain that if this particular sequence of 10 bad things happen, then the whole thing goes very bad indeed. And writing about cybersecurity, as I do from time to time, I I relate to her so much. She's just trying to explain to the board, no, this could, this could fuck up very, very badly, and they don't care. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say, a lot of it is, um, a lot of the novel isn't, is based on, as with everybody's first novel, it's, be, it's said that you just write everything that you know in your first novel. Um, and the, the book opens with um, uh, one of the main characters, and it's a kind of ensemble piece, but one of the main characters being diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, I thought you would mention this, because if you didn't, I was going to. Yeah, and, and that was uh, basically what happened to me. So um, I started writing Singular, the, the first sort of um, lines of singular, um, when I was in the waiting room about to receive my diagnosis um, for testicular cancer, which again happened um, about 13 years ago um, now. And it was um, a book that was propelled to be finished by this weird notion that I was, um, you know, going to perish from the earth at some time relatively soon. So it was um, a kind of combination of things thinking, well, maybe I wouldn't have to die in this sort of um, virtual uh, world. Um, but it was also like sort of excellent fuel um, for the novel because you have all of these weird um, interactions with people you know when you're potentially looking at um some kind of um, 
fatal outcome for something like that. What you're doing a lot of the time is managing other people's um, emotions um, around this and not necessarily managing your own. Um, and where the the character's um, line sort of diverges from mine is that as it turns out, um, I went through um, surgery, um, which removed um, one of my testicles, the left one, just in case anybody's interested. Um, so it's just uh, they brought that down. Yeah, um, and was replaced with a with a prosthetic, and I woke up from that uh, surgery, um, and the surgeon came round and spoke to me, and said, "Looks like it probably wasn't cancer after all." Um, have a nice day, um, and that uh, was, to be honest, surgeons are fabulous with their bedside manner, aren't they? <laughs> um, yeah. It was one of those things where a lot of people afterwards were like, "Oh, surely you're like enormously upset." about that happening and i'm go well not really i mean that it wasn't like cancer yeah yeah also it wasn't like one person's mistake there were like seven mm. different people who are involved at looking at various different scans and tests and all this um sort of stuff so it wasn't like you meet a guy on the street and he says i think you've got cancer mate let's chop off one of your let's balls. chop a ball <laughs> Just in case, you know, it's a, it's a serious process, and it takes several weeks to to go from beginning to to end of that. I think from um finally getting the once the you know they can look at something under the microscope after they've done the operation, mm. and then they do some subsequent tests just to verify absolutely everything. So it's a good sort of six weeks later that you get the final absolutely. There's nothing uh, here at all, and you're fine. Um, sort of thing. Um. But I, I didn't sort of resent it at all, and it gave me the sort of push that I needed to write something, which I'd been trying to do, thinking about for years and years before that. This is the whole, you know, live your life as if you've got one day left kind of cliche. Did it feel like that, or did it have different flavours? No, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, I, I think... Probably if I had one day left to live, I wouldn't sit down and try and write a book. Um, that oh. feels wasteful. Oh. But yeah. I did think maybe I've got like a year. That would be the sort of realistic sort of time scale um, horizon you might end up talking about if things took a, um, a darker path from beginning to end. And you're like, actually, I probably do want to spend a good chunk of that time uh, doing that. Um, and one of the other things I did actually after after that was I uh, went round the world, and that was when I visited um, Australia um, for uh, for a brief period of time as well. So it was really useful. I was probably before that happened. I was probably a pretty boring person, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, it was a sort of galvanizing incident um, for my life. I definitely drifted through my twenties, not particularly doing anything um, or achieving anything. Uh, really, um, and that was um, yeah, good uh, good reminder that our time is limited, which we need from time to time, even if everything's going well. Um, it it is like that sort of thing where um, when uh, when a Roman general used to have a triumph, they would uh, ride into Rome on a chariot, and there would be a slave behind them whose job was to whisper into their ear, um, "All men are mortal, um, and one day you will die." And I think that is a useful bit of a useful reminder for anyone at all times. And yet, the book so far has an amazing amount of wit. 
Oh yeah, yeah you don't want to be miserable about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, everybody's going to die, but I mean, you know, that is an extra reason to try and be funny about things. That's not that's the opposite of being maudlin about everything. There's really no if everyone knows and realizes that they are going to die, then the worst possible thing to do with your time is to be sad. I am reminded uh, that my GP, my doctor, who's been my GP for got more than 25 years now, so we have a certain direct relationship. Like when I t- turned 50, he said, happy birthday, pulled out his rubber gloves and said, today our relationship changes. <laughs> Whacked good. with the rubber glove. <laughs> Get up on the, yeah, drop your trousers. But then I also responded, I mean, I have a dark sense of humour, as you may have noticed. Hmm? I then responded, I just said, still, if it is cancer, I could afford to lose some weight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's true. That's true. Oh, dear. Um, Tell us about the other two books briefly. Oh, um, so I wrote um, my my second book, which is actually my, my far and away my most successful one, which is called Good Witch. Um, and that's probably the weirdest book um, that has ever been written about a family of witches. Um, and it follows through, basically, th- there are threads that go through my work. And the question that I was working on with that is like, what is it acceptable to do for love? And is there anything that is unacceptable? Is there anything that would invalidate um, that love that would that would um, fracture the the purity of that sort of um, emotion? Um, and it was just about exploring that question. And again, it's a comedy, so it's not like um, it's not a philosophical piece. But that's the sort of underlying question that I asked um, of myself there. Without giving spoilers, what sort of things are we talking about here? Again, because it's a sort of magical world, thing, different sort of mm. things are possible, mm. but might you, um, in order to save someone's life, um, remove one of their siblings from their memory for 30 years? Might you wow. um, completely suppress someone's personality in order that you would, um, in order that they would then ultimately benefit by having a child, um, you know that's that sort of I, that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that this is very hard to do, to talk about without spoilers. Okay, I I am definitely having a read of that. And your most recent one, the the one where um, I arrived at the title and everyone said. That is a ridiculously bad title, um, which it, oh, which like it is, it. but it's also the only title the book could possibly have, and it's called the Wickerman Preservation Society, um, and it it weirdly sort of um, predated the sort of COVID pandemic in terms of when I uh, wrote it. In that it's a story about um, a girl uh, whose name is Eleanor, who's just turning sixteen, and she lives on uh, a remote. Uh, island where they practice wicker man uh, sacrifice rituals. Um, but she lives with her mum in a, a tourist hotel and she suffers from uh, acute uh, agoraphobia. 
So basically, she has never left the hotel that she lives in. So she lives in this hotel on a tiny island on the northwest coast of uh, Scotland. And it's about her life and her um, role um, in turning 16, when if you're vaguely familiar with the Wicker Man um, sort of film and, and that kind of ethos where it's her job to pick the next sacrifice and give him her virginity, um, and that is the thing that will then cause him to be, be chosen as a sacrifice and be killed. And then what are the, what are the consequences of that um, sort of decision for her? So it's all about the expectations of her mum and her community um, in that sort of context and the very insular, very small world in which she lives in, which is defined really not so much by the water boundary of her island, but by the walls of the, the hotel and the, the room that she lives in um, within the within the hotel. And then, you know, how do you how do you separate um, duty and obligation and um, familial love and all of those kind of responsibilities from um, the love that one sort of will inevitably and automatically feel towards someone that one would be willing to um, have sex with, if you like. That is also fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading these. Good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the reaction I always hope for. Um, and yeah. I, I like well, to say that yes. I, try to, I try to write books which are stories which I haven't heard before. Um, uh, if you like, there would be no uh, good reason for me to write a story that I've that I already know because it, it would already exist, and they take a bloody long time to write. Um, so yeah. I mean, this is a wonderful contrast to friend of the pod, John Birmingham, who's been on before. But let's face it, he writes trash. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need to wrap up soon, so I'll press this button. David, it, it seems really unfair to ask you for a well-thought-out opinion on the Australian election, which is what we've been doing for other people. But there's sports bet, brackets, kids, bet responsibly or at least bet hilariously, uh, using and ideally using stolen money. Um, sports bet... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> well, I mean, ideally. Sportsbet has a, a market open. Who will be Prime Minister longer, Morrison or Johnson? And currently the odds are $1.50 for Morrison and $2.50 for uh, Johnson. Uh, now, do I have to translate the Australian betting market's idea of this is what we'll pay on a dollar bet? So Scott Morrison at $1.50 in uh, Britain, that would be flagged as a 3 to 2. Yeah, that's right. In in British format, uh, Boris Johnson two dollars fifty. That's five uh, five to two. Yeah. Um, also, um, I realised when uh, you sent me like a primer on betting things, I can't remember where that where that came in. Um, but I have oh, absolutely from one of the Australian betting sites because Australia Australia and China are the two most heavily gambling nations on the planet. Interesting. I uh, didn't know that at all. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I under I 
come to realize that I have absolutely no idea how the American system of points works. <laughs> no, no, Don't, that is incomprehensible. That is, uh, it's America. They're like 4% of the world population. Who cares? Yeah. Um, so... Basically, I don't know when the when the Australian election is. Is there one scheduled? Uh, there is. Uh, well, there's one coming up. It hasn't been scheduled yet. Uh, oh, this is too complicated. It, let's just say it'll be the 31st of May because, uh, I mean, probably because reasons. Okay. So the question is, will Boris Johnson survive to the 21st of May or not? Or Scott Morrison win the next federal election? Ooh. I I understand that feels unlikely um, from what it I know. It does, but we had this same feel three years ago. We have three-year federal terms, not five years as in the UK. Well, interestingly, we don't really, because we introduced a, a set of rules, ah, which yes. was the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, which again was another of David Cameron's bright ideas. Um, and since we introduced the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, absolutely no election has been held under the rules of the Fixed Term <laughs> Parliaments Act. Um, awesome. Which is brilliant um, as an idea. Um, now, here's the thing. If the Queen died, then oh, Jesus. Boris Johnson would definitely have to leave his job because the two things would be tied together inextricably. There would be no way he could maintain his position. If because she lives, it's the COVIDs, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. If she lives, and I hope she does, um, I, am, I am vaguely a monarchist. Um, and, at, and she, Oh, okay, there's another whole rabbit hole. But yes, at the time of recording, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Queen of Australia, etc., etc., is alive. She is. <laughs> God save the Queen. Um, so if she lives, then will he survive until May? Boris Johnson is nothing if not tenacious, um, and he may be nothing um, if not tenacious. <laughs> um, we only found out last year the number of children that Boris Johnson actually has. So he does oh, have a bit on. of a we tenacious We don't know team. that even today. Don't give us this bullshit. We've, no one knows how many children Boris Johnson has had. Well, I mean, we've, we've settled on the number of six as being the number. Okay. Whether that's accurate or not, we have a number. And to be fair, that's all that's been true of all the other prime ministers. We've had a number that we agreed on. <laughs> We, we, okay. Nobody's okay. checked. <laughs> the consensus is six. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I think probably my, my money would be on Scott Morrison um, losing the next election and Boris Johnson pushing on to the summer in the hopes that what would happen is that once COVID restrictions end entirely, um, something good will happen and his opinion poll numbers will start to go back up again. It's unlikely, but that will be the horse that he's trying to ride across the finish line. So when you said something good is going to happen, I remember that there was another prime minister who had the D-Ream song as his theme song, Things Are Going to Get Better. Yep. Uh, that was Tony Blair, sorry. So that was Tony Blair, what was the other one you just said? I've just confused myself. Something good's going to happen. 
I think was the something the good's gonna happen. We- oh no, no, no. That's um something good's gonna happen. Utah Saints. Do I need to remind I, you? I can. No, it's fine. Oh. I don't think something good is going to happen, though. I think he's going to be the the problem that we're stuck with, and that he's yep. going to be uh, as really all conservative prime ministers have been since time immemorial, immemorial um, driven from office by the treachery of his own backbenchers. Um, that is the only way that conservative PMs are ever replaced, other than, of course, by losing elections. Um, being arrested for something. Oh, no, they never get arrested. What am I saying? No, no. The betting market reckons Morrison will be PM longer than Johnson. Nah. Nah. I, well, I, I, it comes down to the election. If it was just a straight um, who will be PM for longer and there wasn't an election for Scott Morrison, then it would be Scott Morrison. Sure. Um, but... Uh, well, let's say Boris Johnson has not gone yet when there were plenty of opportunities and plenty of people speaking against him. So, yeah, I think you're right. If he hasn't gone yet, why would they decide now as opposed to two or three weeks ago? He's he's a man who is immune to embarrassment. Um, he's a government which is basically at this point Full of incompetence. Uh, uh, really, our government is much more tumour than grandmother by this point. And uh, we need these people... We need these people excised. We need them put down. Is <laughs> where we are um, with it. And the British public are probably just about ready to tolerate another Labour government um, again. So... It, it might happen, and once that starts to percolate, then he won't be long for the world. But he really needs to—he really needs to turn things around. But whoever replaces him is almost certainly not going to win another term in government anyway. So it's not like there's lots of people who are eager to step into his shoes necessarily. And on that uh, note of prognosis. Dication. That's a hard word to say. David F. Porteous, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This evening slash this morning. One quick update before I go. Well, a couple of quick updates. One, uh, I believe Her Majesty is still alive. Two, the sports bets are sports bet odds for the federal election. Much the same. Labor lengthened slightly to $1.38 for the win as opposed to $1.35, whatever. Um, the other one on uh, Morrison versus uh, Johnson, just the same, $1.50 and $2.50 respectively. And the next episode, I must say... Uh, it will slide slightly out of summer into the first week of February. Uh, I mean, March. First week of March, good heavens. Uh, that's the one with Justin Warren uh, about stuff. Just uh, my schedule's a little packed. I don't I don't think the, the world will end, do you? I fucking hope not anyway. That's all the edict for now. Uh, please uh, go to the 9pm edict.com slash tip and do the needful or just tell your friends about the pod. Uh, tell them it's not normally this long. 
the next episode will be in a few days within the next week or so. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.